Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to rock it and roll it with some revivalism, specifically, though, American revivalism. So we're not talking the beautiful and staid and Swabian revivalism of Elder and Younger Bloomheart like we did late last year. And we are not talking about the wild and woolly revivalism of the Malagasy Lutheran Church led by Nenny Lava, as we talked about last time. But now we are bringing it on home to our own American context and setting and history. And we're, but of course, because we are us, we are starting the story of American revivalism with Martin Luther, aren't we, Dad? Well, why not begin at the beginning? So is he the beginning? Is that how that works? Well, I think so, though a lot of subsequent Lutheran history erased this beginning. And uh, in the name of the purely forensic and solely extrinsic attribution of alien righteousness uh, to faith. Uh, That doctrine obscured the fact that uh, for the Augsburg Confession, informed, of course, by the early theology of Luther and Melanchthon, uh, faith and regeneration were identical. Faith is the new birth, the coming... uh, to faith is the sovereign gift of the Spirit, and as such is a passage from death to life, uh, from mortification to vivification, from crucifixion to resurrection. Uh, and uh, it was in this sense that uh, the Augsburg Confession itself speaks of the Holy Spirit working through the means of grace Ubi et quando Deo visum est, where and when it pleases God. So I don't know, you if you're an Augsburg Confession Lutheran and you see in the Augsburg Confession the vital theology of the first decade plus of the Reformation, you certainly can say that the doctrine of the new birth has a new uh, beginning uh, in the rediscovery of justification by faith, where and when faith is faith in Christ, which is itself the sovereign work and gift of the Holy Spirit. How's that? So, well, no, that was great. That was great. But it's another great case where the word obscures <laughs> rather than than reveals. And in this case, I mean words like birth and born, because clearly somehow in the air, there was such fear among American Lutherans of talk about being born again and all the ways that had been abused, that even like new birth language was very difficult. And I suppose also if you are raised in a Christian environment, and so you have a more continuous than discontinuous experience of Christian faith, then birth with all the the drama and the blood and the water and the pangs somehow is not the most apt metaphor ready at hand. So it was definitely well after my ordination that I was rereading the Book of Concord. Hey, not a bad thing to do, ordained people. Reread that Book of Concord sometimes. That I found the word regeneration, and I I was like, oh, this literally means rebirth, like being born again. Huh, we do kind of have that, but we you know, we use the nice long Latin terms to conceal any kind of uh, material connection to what those mm-hmm. yucky Baptists do. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, a lot of history 
and theological reality that gets fundamentally obscured this way. I say that, obscured this way, because what you have in American born-againism, that's how Eric Grich described it, born-againism as a modern theology. He wrote a little book under that title, Born-Againism. Uh, uh, what, what you have in born-againism is a kind of return of the repressed. If the orthodox uh, movements in Lutheran and Reformed theology suppressed the theme of regeneration or new birth, which is biblical after all, John chapter 3, please, among right, other places. Right. And it's in fact, just to make a side comment here in terms of the New Testament, just as the Gospel of John is constantly trying to reframe the earlier Christian tradition, where the dominant metaphor for the transformation of human subjectivity under the impact of the gospel was mortification and vivification, crucifixion and resurrection, dying with Christ and rising with Christ. All, of course, of this was centered on the dramatic ceremony of immersion, baptism by immersion, the drowning and the renewal of uh, all that in primitive Christianity, the Gospel of John then tries to uh, interpret to a new generation in the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, where this metaphor of new birth rather than resurrection is attempting to describe the same transformation of human subjectivity. All right. uh, it's interesting just because birth brings together blood and water in a very dramatic way, crucifixion and baptism. And in, in John's crucifixion scene, the soldier puts the spear in Jesus' side and blood and water come out. So there must be some kind of very creative, like you said, retooling of this metaphor and introducing a new one that draws together crucifixion and baptism through this new metaphor of birth. I never made that connection, but that makes a lot of sense. I think that's right. Yeah. And we could explore that further, but listeners can just take a good, careful look at the play on words uh, in John 3, in which Nicodemus uh, literalistically misunderstands Jesus and thinks he's talking about a grown man going back into his mother's womb. And Talk Jesus, about the return of the repressed. Blech. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's very funny. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you got me off track with that wisecrack there, daughter. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Okay, uh, now let me get back on yes. the rails here. Okay. Yes, and so then Jesus just, says, "No, no, I mean being born from above." It's the the pun that you can do in Greek that you can't do in English. Right by word and spirit. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and that's a, 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 another attempt then to retrieve the meaning of the earlier traditions uh, metaphor of cross and resurrection. Okay, so then uh, just coming back to this again. For Luther, then, especially the early Luther, the new birth is a wonder. It's an incalculable gift. It's not anything that you can trigger or control. It's the sovereign work of the Spirit. However, by the same token, the Word promises the Spirit, and the Spirit is faithful to the Word. This is an aspect of Trinitarian theology in the background here. 
No genuine word without the spirit who animates it, no genuine spirit who does not attest to the word incarnate Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the gift of the spirit is that is coming to faith is not in our human control. Nevertheless, the spirit commits himself through word and sacrament as they are faithfully attesting the good news of Christ, uh, that the spirit will be efficacious according to the will of God. So I think that's really important because what it does is it puts a break on one side against works righteousness in the sense of what must I do in order to be saved, to get these gifts, you know, the, the working and earning the gift of the spirit. But it also puts a break on the other side against the double predestination extreme. If Well, if it's when and where it pleases God, then we can't do anything about it. We have no control. It's a total mystery, a random choice on God's part. So the this this doctrine, this Luther's doctrine of the new birth is a very determinedly sees the two extremes and is refuting them both. Yeah, it's finding the golden mean between the Scylla and Charybdis of of double predestination and works righteousness. Absolutely. Well said. But that's not historically where the American revivalist doctrine of being born again comes from. It really has its origins in a, a Zurich alternative to Luther's Reformation in the theology of Bullinger. And we have to bear in mind here that in the background, are the uh, severe Anabaptist polemics against the baptism of infants. And Bullinger, at this point in history, still wanted to justify infant baptism, but he was unwilling to follow uh, Luther's view uh, of, of baptism as the Spirit's mean of, means of grace, where and when it pleases God. Uh, and so what was the alternative? How do you justify infant baptism uh, against the Anabaptist critique without following Luther as we just exposited? Well, he invents, And is there a reason why Bullinger didn't want to follow Luther or was not persuaded by Luther's account yeah, of infant baptism? They, they interpreted Luther to mean that baptism saves mechanically or automatically, ex opere uh, okay. operato. Uh, Whereas Luther, you know, certainly sustains the sovereignty of the Spirit uh, and, and does not ever say that baptism mechanically produces uh, its uh, effective res uh, effect of, of calling to faith. Uh, that's really the personal work of the Spirit. And it's not, therefore, mechanically or automatically or causally linked to the to the performance of the sacrament itself but for luther you would he would still say that the baptism is how the spirit goes about electing and saving people that that is the means by which the sovereign spirit works it's it's the means of the spirit because salvation or election is unification with christ in his cross and resurrection that's why baptism is the means of grace the exclusive means of grace for, for Luther. Right. But that distinction gets lost for Bullinger. Okay. Yes. And it sounds like Luther's half-stuck in uh, papal, papism. That's what the critique was. <laughs> Still thinking that sacraments worked automatically on infants. So the alternative Bullinger comes up with is a kind of a, what's it's called federal theology, or perhaps more intelligible for us, 
covenant theology. And here the Old Testament uh, model of the covenant as a uh, treaty between a sovereign and a vassal uh, is picked up. The Lord graciously as the sovereign um, makes a covenant or a treaty uh, with a people. And since this covenant or treaty applies to them and to their progeny forever, uh, uh, they uh, who enter the covenant, human beings who enter the covenant, have entered a mutually obligatory pact. They do their part, uh, and God does God's part. And it's a sovereignty-vassal relationship, which is conditional upon the vassals keeping covenant, uh, being faithful to their obligations in this relationship. And one of those obligations is to baptize their infants, just as in the Old Covenant, uh, the Jews uh, performed circumcision on their male babies. So in this way, baptism is the supersession, the replacement of Jewish circumcision, a way of handing down the covenant to the next generation and performing the vassal's obligatory part in relationship to the Lord. Yeah, well, it's not just the supersession of circumcision. Say that five times real fast. It's the supersession of the whole Jewish people. Again, it's another enactment of that your covenant is null and void and our covenant still works, which is, again, a return of the oppressed, again, a return of the repressed again and again throughout Christian history. Just as a side note, I mean, that itself is is bad. I'm always troubled now whenever I see... All right, so the, the, this could take us really far afield, but just a quick note. On the one hand, to make the connection between New Testament and Old Testament theology is greatly to be desired. On the other hand, it so often turns out to work in this replacement way, like they did that version of it, now we do this version of it, which is better. Baptism is better than circumcision. So I both am um, troubled by that, even though it's trying to make the right connection. And um, I'm also wondering, is this really the right reading of covenant theology anyway? It seems like from a very narrow swath of Deuteronomy and then ignores all the other complicated ways in which God's electing grace and Israel's unfaithfulness, nevertheless, the relationship perdures throughout. Uh, we, we, I know we could go off on a whole side channel on that, but just remark briefly before we move on. Yeah, I, I think that's very good. But I think there is a tension I said this in my Joshua commentary, there's a tension within the, within the Torah itself between the promissory uh, aspect, which is grace and grace alone. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the promissory. But then there's also the imperative. Therefore, have no other gods before me. And uh, the experience of Israel is that uh, the Lord uh, is trusted ultimately to be unilaterally faithful to that indicative statement. I am the Lord your God. I will never quit on you. I brought you up. and uh, But you, on the other hand, have often quit on me with disastrous consequences, right? And uh, 
So Israel is aware of this tension between the indicative and the imperative. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, good. Well, we'll we will always return to these questions of of Jewish Christian theology and interpretation. But now we have the problem, which is that Bullinger is a Swiss, and according to my memory of American history, our nation was never overrun with waves and waves of Swiss immigration. So tell us, Ted, <laughs> how did how did Bullinger's uh, federal theology, which was a last ditch effort to preserve infant baptism without a very good reason for doing so, make its way into our early culture? Well, it was via England. There was a period, I, th- I think during Queen Mary's reign, when uh, the uh, Protestants were expelled from England and found refuge in Zurich. Uh, though Cran- Cranmer, uh, who later became the first Protestant bishop of the uh, Church of England, uh, Cranmer spent time in Wittenberg and was much influenced by Luther theology, uh, and other uh, other Reformed, uh, other English Protestants found refuge in Geneva. So returning to England uh, after the end of, of Mary's reign were, were English Protestants who brought with them Lutheran, Calvinist, and Zurich, uh, Bullinger, then, uh, who had earlier been uh, 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 the reformer in Zurich earlier had been Zwingli. Uh, these uh, influences came back to England. And I, so Bullinger is not the whole story because the, the strain uh, of uh, theology that comes from Geneva, from Calvin, owned up to that radical uh, emphasis on the sovereign and incalculable gift of grace that elects the believer and bestows faith. And of course, with that, the full embrace of the doctrine of double predestination. Uh, and this is injected into the DNA of early English theology as well. So over against a kind of more calculated relationship, uh, a more transactional relationship between God and humanity and Bollinger's covenant theology, in Calvin, you have this joker in the deck, which is the sovereign and arbitrary grace of God. So that gets thrown into the mix as well. And of course, then Cramner also has a complicated uh, inheritance from his time in Wittenberg and so forth. Okay, so all of these influences are coming into English Protestantism. Uh, now, the Puritans, who were the most uh, radical of the, these groups of Protestants, uh, were also instructed not only by Calvin, but by Calvin's great source, Augustine. And they were therefore looking for that uh, transformation of the human heart of desire. Now, if we go all the way back to Augustine, we have to remember that this is how he interpreted the new birth, that uh, out of the morass of idolatrous desires and objectifications of desire in which the lost sinner is enclosed and entrapped, sovereign grace overtakes and overwhelms uh, this lost soul such that 
spontaneously there erupts within one's heart a pure, if inchoate, but a pure love of God for God's sake. And this is how Augustine read that passage in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I think this is really important and interesting because Augustine obviously needed a transformation of his behavior, and he needed a transformation of his intellect, and he needed a transformation of his will even. But for him, like the deepest layer down you get, even deeper than the will, is the desire. And that is something that is actually not in any way in your own control. And that's why he had to experience it as the the miraculous, incalculable gift of the Spirit, the, the love of Christ being poured into him, because it was finally something he could not do himself. And that maintains that mysterious yet concrete element. But that means for people who are religiously ambitious, they are not going to be able to finally get a grip on the one thing that most needs to change. And I think in the story you're going to unfold for us, that's going to be the recurring problem, right? Yeah, that's right. That's how it'll turn out. But I want to just give some honor to these early Puritans because they were really quite intent and quite insistent upon this that the gift of the new birth was God's sovereign work. You couldn't fake it. You couldn't uh, act as if you had it. You had to wait for it to come upon you and overtake you. And there was no actual preparation that you could possibly offer, miserable sinner that you are, uh, to trigger the gift of grace. You were actually waiting for a miracle to happen in the heart of your heart so that you would spontaneously and freely come to the love of God for God's sake. Did they have any sense that that there were means? Like, I mean, presumably Puritans were going to church and singing hymns and reading scripture and praying, but did they just divorce that utterly from how the transformation would come about in order to preserve God's sovereignty? You have to remember here that with Queen Mary in England, the Puritans had become radically anti-Catholic. That you can you can see that also in the Zurich influence, and to a lesser extent in Calvin, uh, you can see that they they were uh, thinking that any reliance on external means is inauthentic. They are nothing but witnesses to point you to the passive state of waiting for the miraculous new birth to befall you. That's all they can be. So these early Puritans then restricted membership in the community of the church only to those who were authentically born again in this way. And how did they test that? Uh, If you felt that you had been born again, you had to come before the elders of the church and make a testimony to your experience, which they, they as the community of the born again, would then authenticate and admit you into the fellowship of the church. Wow, this is so interesting because it reminds me of our conversation about the emergence of science out of a saint verification. And it seems like very much in that same milieu of, of rising scientific method, this fits right in with that. 
Yeah, and it fits into the empiricist orientation of British culture. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this next time when we talk about uh, theology of experience. Uh, but both Descartes and Locke are foundationalists, thinking that knowledge is founded uh, uh, on, on, on something. Uh, and this foundation can be intellectual self-intuition in Descartes and in the continental tradition, or in John Locke and those who follow John Locke in immediate sense experience. But in either way, they're looking for the foundations of knowledge. And religiously, then, you're, you're called to a genuine introspection to examine your heart to see whether, in fact, you have truly been given the new birth, which consists in pure love of God for God's sake. Yeah, I I can like you said I can admire the the authenticity that they desire there and at the same time be horrified at how gameable the system is going to be real fast. <laughs> yes, well, what happens in New England then the puritans then give up pretty much on life in England and uh want to create a New England with a reformed church and society. So they bring this uh, theological passion with them to the new world, and they create a, a genuinely theocratic society uh, in which uh, only the born again can rule the church and the state. Both church and state are reserved to the born again along the lines that we've uh, discussed. Well, that worked maybe for the first generation, Sarah. But then as New England, as maybe, as New England prospered, right, and grew, and commerce took off, and people became wealthy, guess what happened? Take a wild guess. Go ahead. Let me guess. There weren't enough holy reborn people to run the society because those dirty people who engaged in commercial transaction got so rich and swamped the system. Well, actually, they understaffed the system as a result. They they weren't available uh, to, to be magistrates and so forth. You basically had too high a bar to hold public office. Right. And, of course, the church itself was suffering because the, the, those who could attest to this genuine experience of the new birth uh, being diminished, the church itself uh, waned in its, its influence and, and grip upon uh, people's hearts and so forth. And what evolved then in the course of the next century, uh, uh, the 1700s, was what was called the halfway covenant. The oh, halfway, right, I remember that. Right, right. The halfway covenant. So here is where you get a new emphasis on uh, the church opening, uh, lowering the bar and saying there are many people in our community who want to be Christians, who want to be in participants in the church, who want uh, to participate in our society, but they just can't honestly, they can't honestly attest to being born again. So what do we do with these people? Answer, well, we create a a middle category, sort of like congregations have a category like friends of the congregation. Uh, 
people who won't get baptized or confirmed, but like to hang out with the church. And uh, so they're not members, they're friends of the congregation. So this was the halfway covenant. And with the halfway covenant, of course, then they got staffing again for church and society, uh, right? Uh, and still, there was just this tremendous internal contradiction uh, between saying you're a halfway Christian, but you're not really a Christian because you're not born again. But, you know, Dad, this is such, again, such a deep pattern, and at least in Christianity, if you think about the whole cleavage between monastic culture and ordinary Christian culture through so much of the, you know, European Christendom period, and then later again in the 20th century of the same issue come up in Pentecostal churches where baptism in the Spirit with signs accompanying, chiefly speaking in tongues, is the new, you know, like born-again status, but you have lots and lots of people who are members of Pentecostal churches who have never had that happen. But so the the two have to coexist. This is is such a deep repeating pattern. Yeah. And notice again how it turns on this focus uh, of introspection. It turns upon this uh, uh, kind of deep self-examination looking for the signs of a miracle, which and so forth. So what for Lutheran theology is so important, the external uh, signs and symbols of, of of bread and wine and water, and in fact, even the preaching of a human being, all these external signs, our aids, have been in in principle discredited as remnants of papalism, papism, right? So you can't you can't rely on anything outside of your own heart. The only uh, relevant evidence is what's happening enti- entirely inside of you. And so, um, under the pressure of this, the halfway covenant increasingly uh, seems to be opening up to a kind of like you said a medieval idea: God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that um, um, you can prepare yourself for the new birth. You can do things that would trigger it, right? So that's a big change then. So that from the the very stark Puritan vision of it is purely miraculous. There is nothing you can do but tarry for it. But now somehow it must be like the the, the pressure or the need for more people. I don't know if it's because the church needs more people or more people need the church. But somehow there has to be some way to accelerate the process. And it is is it in that context that these preparations for for salvation start to rise? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I would like to say, mention here, too, that there's a certain amount of pastoral, uh, perhaps misguided, but pastoral compassion here. What do you do with people who say, I want to believe, I just can't believe. I want to participate, but I just feel like a fake when I do. What do you do pastorally with such people? And I think the compassionate but misguided advice that's given along these lines of the halfway covenant is uh, God helps those who help themselves. Just hang in there. Sooner or later, uh, uh, something good will happen. You'll get a little taste of grace and develop an appetite for it or something like that. 
try harder. Here's 10 things you can do to build up your spiritual life, right? Exactly, right. Phil Carey, by the way, uh, wrote a wonderful book on uh, good advice for anxious Christians in which he's dealing huh. with all of these issues. We'll have to oh, mention okay. that in the show notes. Yeah, sure, sure. Good. Okay, so now you get into a period of time here where the old uh, Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, uh, is now being debated by the intellectuals, uh, the theologians. And I think. And are we still uh, in the 1700s here? Yeah, right, we are, right? Okay. So now, again, introspection, uh, psychological self examination, the order of salvation, the, the, the sequence in which things occur that lead up through preparation to the experience of the new birth. Uh, the theologians are arguing that they can actually lay this out in a, in a ca- causal sequence, the order of salvation. And I, I'd like to read just one from a Puritan theologian, William Perkins. Uh, this is how he described uh, the order of salvation. And listen, Sarah, this was no stroll through the park. <laughs> It consists in no less than ten steps, beginning with some cross that exposed oneself's insufficiency and led to awareness uh, of the rigor of God's holy demand. Faced with God's holy demand, one discovered in oneself the resisting power of sin and so experienced the fear of damnation. Thus far, according to Perkins, However, we have only works of preparation. To proceed in the pilgrimage to God, a special gift of grace is now required. For the next step is a serious contemplation of the promise of salvation, and this produces the first sparks of faith. But our pilgrim is far from safely arrived, because now the devil attacks. The little seed of faith is overwhelmed in a travail of doubt and despair. To survive at all, it must press through to a full sense of personal assurance. That's that experience of new birth, personal assurance. The first sign of such assurance is a period of evangelical sorrow in which sin becomes grievous to the new saintly person purely because it is sin. At last, God crowns the struggle with the grace of heartfelt, voluntary, joyful obedience, a new spirit for the living of the lifelong walk of sanctification. Like I said, Sarah, no stroll through the park. I I just, like, there's nothing I despise more than ordo salutist schemes like this. It's like the W-2 of spirituality, you know, like you have to (laughs) fill in the form and then you you get a, a free pass from God's IRS. But I have to say, in all fairness, that... The Ordo Salutis was an extremely popular topic in German Lutheranism, too. I mean, Lutherans have generated so many of these, too. So we are not innocent in this regard. But, man, people are just – this is not how people work, individually or collectively. It's just such a – and it's so dangerous, too, and it it makes people insecure, and it also shoehorns them and it manipulates them. It's so wrong. Ah. But it's wrong because the root assumption is that you can discover faith by introspection. That's the root error, that you can examine yourself and discover in yourself whether or not you have faith. 
Yeah, that's a purely anthropocentric procedure. And it's the root error in this whole approach. Well, and then, but your blessed assurance is not actually in Christ. Your blessed assurance is, oh, I'm at stage four. This is really good. You know, it's rough. I'm I've on still my got way. six more to go. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, right. It, it, you put your faith in entirely the wrong thing. And then what happens if you're stuck at four and never get to five? That reminds me of what we said about Katie Langston's uh, description of the Mormon order of salvation, namely uh, that finally it's faith in the plan. It's not faith in the living God, the free Lord who loves in freedom uh, and so forth. It's faith in a certain plan that can be rationally uh, mapped out and, and presumably followed to its conclusion. I want to mention here the wisdom of Paul Tillich in this regard who pointed out that psychologically there are as many ways of coming to faith psychologically as there are human beings. There is no one psychological pattern of coming to faith. You can be baptized as an infant and 50 years later discover the gospel and what it means for you. You can be baptized as an infant and never remember a day of your life that you weren't living in the gracious arms of a gracious God. And everything in between, psychologically. And so Paul Tillich put it this way, you can enter the theological circle at any point on its circumference. At any point on its circumference. And behind that is our Lutheran idea that faith is not introspection. Faith is, to coin a word, extraspection. Faith is looking out of myself to the Christ uh, who comes to me through the gospel and embraces me in the joyful exchange and in that very way objectively and miraculously confers upon me by the Spirit the new subjectivity of faith. Now, that's very beautiful. And as I recall, that's exactly what George Whitfield preached on his circuits through New England. Is that correct? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, exactly uh, I, the opposite. I, I, don't, I don't think so, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you better take us on as time is passing here. Uh, that was very beautiful, but we better get back to the first great awakening now. Yeah, right. So what has happened by the end of the, by the, um, middle of the 17th century or early in the 17th century after a hundred years of life in New England and in the Wait, American, wouldn't that be 18th century then? Yeah, 18th century and the, uh, and the American colonies, which now stretch from Maine to Georgia or something like that. Um, what has happened then is this, uh, the most of the uh, original Protestants have fallen away from the faith. They become immersed in building a new world and their secular lives, and the whole theocratic experiment has collapsed. And so, as some scholars have pointed out, uh, looking to Cotton Mather, who laments this situation, uh, that there was a need for theocratic uh, renewal, theocratic reinvigoration. And that's kind of what the First Great Awakening really uh, uh, engineered. Now, the great preacher of the First Great Awakening was George Whitfield. Uh, and he was a remarkable and very interesting personality. Uh, uh, he uh, aggressively called people 
to appropriate the new birth as a felt experience of the love of God poured into uh, their hearts. Uh, and in the process, uh, with his revival meetings out in the open, away from the settled churches, in the camp meetings, the first kind of mass meetings that were taking place, where he would preach dramatically, melodramatically, enacting Bible stories and so forth in a kind of narrative preaching, right? Uh, he would dramatically enact this new birth that he was calling for by his portrayal of biblical figures, uh, and then appealing to people through the uh, mimesis to experience this for themselves. And tacitly then, and sometimes not so tacitly, also to abandon your old dead churches where nothing is happening and your pastors are spiritually dead, the dead leading the dead, the blind leading the blind, and things of that sort. So this was the first kind of massive uh, discovery of an American religion, a mass discovery of an American religion that really was a novo ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages. <laughs> right. And it has never left us. I mean, that that whole the, the dramatic enactment with high stakes, emotional pressure and the subtext, leave your old dead institution and come bring your feet and your money to ours. That is not in any way diminished. Uh, and it's not just in religion anymore either. Gosh. I would, like I mentioned, though, I would say in defense, in uh, at least a little bit of defense of Billy Graham's crusades of the 20th century, he always worked hard to correct this error and to uh, correlate the results of his crusades with the established churches. Uh, and that was a, a certain self-correction within the evangelical uh, movement. Yeah, I guess I don't think first of Billy Graham, but of people who have come since him and megachurches today. But yeah. Right. Let me, there's a quote here from a really good scholar named Stout about Whitfield that I'd like to read. In Whitfield's sermons, the personal experience of newness was immediate and overwhelming. He preached as though there would be no tomorrow to an audience who might never again assemble in the present configuration. Throughout, he showed no interest in theology. Instead of doctrine, he explored the feelings of the new birth, and through his exploration invited hearers to experience it for themselves. Repeatedly, he asked his listeners to imagine a different state of being, to imagine being birthed into a new creature. What would happen, he asked, if one were consciously to live through a thorough, real, inward change of heart? Well, Sarah, there you have the seeds of the doctrine, the current American doctrine of human autonomy as expressive individualism in an act of pure self-determination. Right, because you have to will yourself to feel the right feelings, and what you think is almost irrelevant to that. Right, and what the the external world is, <laughs> and what the, yeah, right. and what the external world is 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 uh, really something in the power of your imagination and will to transform. Mm. 
And I, I'm I'm really struck by that that emphasis on the mimesis that you see someone enacting the right feelings, and then you long to have those feelings too, and so you try to align your feelings with their feelings, which you know is such a recipe for inauthenticity in a culture that's obsessed with authenticity. It's it's a it's a snake biting its tail. It sure is. And we're, we're going to talk about that in some future episodes this season. That's for sure. Can I ask a question then? So it's interesting. I mean, this is so much about feelings, but the way you get there is by this determination of the will. Like you make the decision, you commit your life to Jesus or to being this kind of religious person. So is that somehow the deep origin of the American obsession also with free will? Like I, I hear quite intelligent and theologically educated American Christians who like this is like the one thing that they won't budge on or examine is their commitment to free will and any attempt to like talk about the more complex understanding of the will in an Augustinian Lutheran strain mainly just meets with a blank stare. And maybe it's because the will is better than feelings only. (laughs) Like that's my, my guess. But there's like this commitment to free will that seems there that I don't understand why it's so fierce given all the very obvious challenges to the will's freedom well if if the the root of this is the project of of the sovereignty of the modern self right how else do you exercise sovereignty other than by decrees by saying declarations. This shall be so. I will command my heart to feel this way. Now, of course, you know, uh, in religion, that would have some reference, of course, somehow to Jesus or biblical characters, but they would be functioning primarily as models. I can be born again like Paul. I can have a free heart like Peter after Jesus forgives him or something like that, right? Uh, And But I think the insight here for our listeners ought to be something more like this. What is it about modern culture that makes a wild affirmation of a sovereign free will such such a matter of emphasis and desire, uh, that if I give up free will, I give up my own selfhood? I, I'm, I become nothing but a billiard ball being kicked around the pool table by the impact of other balls. And I, and I don't have any sense of self-determination, any sense of autonomy, any sense of being in control of my own life. What is it about modern culture, American too, that reduces people to this uh, soul uh, doctrine on which the self stands and falls, namely the assertion uh, of, of free will in this in this highly implausible way that you mentioned. So do you think what it is is that religion offers the one last place people can be sovereign because they're so under the control of so many other forces from advertising to the NSA and Google spying on everything that you do and trying to manipulate you that way? I think, well, I think also anti-religion <laughs> can also follow the, exactly the same dynamics. You may have noticed that anyone who uh, uh, recovers them, like we talked about Katie Langston again, how she, when she escaped from the clutches of Mormon fundamentalism, right, 
she, she at first became a secular liberal uh, and then was discovering that that was the same disease in a, in a new guise, right? Until she encountered the genuine sovereignty of the loving and gracious God, uh, which is a very different kind of thing. And so you can begin to speak not of a free will, but of a freed will, a will that has been set free by its encounter uh, with the grace of God, uh, concretely in, in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, I think, I mean, just the, the conversation we've had here shows how, despite how far back <laughs> these events we've described took place, how deeply rooted they are in our culture, unmoored from their origins, but they're still there. So um, could you, in the time we have left, kind of just kind of run through quickly how this plays out in the rest of American culture. I mean, we have a lot more religious phenomena that come out of this early first great awakening, but what, where do you see the lines to trace out that bring us up to the present and that we still experience these things in some way? Yeah, I think in many ways, um, I think even numerically, Baptists are the largest American denomination. I think I'm right about that. If you collect all the different Baptists and all the right, denominations, all the then yes, they're the biggest Protestant group. Yeah. But what the Baptists have in common, generally speaking, now, of course, there are differences, is they have this inheritance uh, uh, from Whitfield um, 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 of anti-intellectualism. These are the primitive Baptists. Uh, for whom... Uh, that's their name for themselves. That's not a slander on your part. Right, right. That's their name for themselves. Uh, and for which the Bible, namely the King James translation of the Bible, is the word of God, end of discussion. And that's that. Anything that contradicts that is a plot of Satan or something like that. You also have a certain kind of anti-clericalism, Though this is a little bit more t uh, uh, tricky because you also have charismatic preachers who become very authoritative uh, within the life of, of, uh, of these evangelical uh, congregations. Uh, but there's a deep anti-clericalism in this sense, that which Lutherans encounter whenever they uh, a non-Lutheran can hear the words of absolution as a called and ordained servant of the church of Christ and by his authority, I declare to you the entire forgiveness of all your sins. Who's that human being to say that he, she is forgiving my sins? That's the objection. It's the objection that there actually can be uh, shepherds, under shepherds of the good shepherd. He who hears me, Jesus says to his disciples, he who hears you hears me. And that is uh, the, the meaning of the pastoral office and the authority of the pastoral office uh, as a, a, a vetted, tested, and educated uh, speaker of the word of God. One can speak that word with authority uh, and be tested, uh, therefore, according uh, to the word uh uh, that under which uh, that person has been ordained and so forth. Uh, another fallout is denominational multiplication and sheep stealing. Uh, that this attack on the established churches going back to 
the uh, early Baptists and then the revival camp meetings uh, uh, of Whitfield's uh, preaching across the colonies and so forth. Uh, all of this led to the transformation of the revival into a marketable consumer product. As, and just as American self-consciousness was changing into consumerism, the great thing about being an American is that I can buy whatever I want, provided I have the money to do it. And that then gets applied to religion, and religion becomes uh, something that you market, and you market by getting people's attention. You get people's attention by advertising, and the revival becomes a big advertisement, right, uh, to sell people on a particular brand of religion. And of course, then this becomes a, a self, self-devouring phenomenon as every revival burns up another revival. I was a pastor in upstate New York. I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again briefly. When I visited, I, I, I visited a person uh, who hadn't been to church for a long time. And I said, why don't you come to church? And he said to me, pastor, I've been born again so many times and it never did take. And that is why that part of upstate New York is called the burned out district, because the revival had played this game so many times that people have just given up on it. I think for the contemporary generation, perhaps one of the biggest uh, problems with revivalism uh, is the phenomenon of slaveholding revivalists uh, throughout the American South, uh, defenders of slavery, uh, owners of slaves, and so forth, uh, uh, who claim to have been born again uh, uh, to the love of God and so forth, uh, nevertheless were not only owners of slaves, but defenders of slavery. And then later, defenders of Jim Crow. And so this massive contradiction discredits the whole thing in the eyes of uh, the young people today. And maybe one last couple of comments here. In many ways, you can see the rise of liberal theology in America as a backlash against all of this. You know, like we said, Katie, Katie got out of fundamentalism temporarily by becoming a liberal. Right. And I, we see this story everywhere. It's, it's a very typical story. Yeah. Yeah. I saw at Princeton a lot of people who were emerging out of fundamentalism of some kind or another and had this, you know, great liberal tradition waiting there to embrace them. And um, of course, with no way of knowing <laughs> all the problems that that would bring of a very different order. And uh, maybe liberal problems are preferable to fundamentalist problems, but they're still real problems. Right. Okay, that's another. So I don't want to be tempted to go diving into that. <laughs> okay. I think the last irony here is the institutionalization of revival. In the Bible Belt, where I am located now in southwest Virginia, every summer you can see these evangelical churches with their sign up, uh, revival next week, guest preacher so-and-so. <laughs> you know, like, you, yeah. like you, you, could actually, you could actually instrumentalize the revival. Uh, and so forth. So I think that's enough said about the fallout of revivalism in America. 
Uh, you know, it's very interesting too. Just uh, liberal theology is one example, but I was just thinking there there are so many other religious stories in America. There's slave religion itself that so much adopted the Christianity of the very you know self contradictory slaveholders, but made it their own thing. And of course, there's an enormous numbers of Catholics in America, and there are Jews and you know other other um, smaller world religions that have found their place. And you know Lutherans are a kind of weird fit somewhere between the the Catholic and the Protestant story. But what strikes me is if you are an American, no matter what your theological, liturgical, spiritual presets are, somehow this heritage is something you have to deal with and respond to. And you can respond to it in the most rejection-heavy way of just being like, you know, very hardcore, smells and bells, liturgy. You know, I've heard the kind of, of pastor or priest who is basically opposed to ever having any religious feelings at all because it's just going to lead you down this <laughs> ugly path, right? Right. And, you know, and then and there are others who, um, you know, basically, you know, adopt these kind of like, uh, you know, you know, I don't know, like camp for young Jewish people to try to to drum up some passion for Torah or whatever, you know, like it's it's all somehow we're all living with reference to this, regardless of whether or not our own indigenous Christian or other religious tradition has any material connection to it. We're we're still we're all revivalists somehow, just like we're all liberals somehow, as McIntyre said. You know, and I would just say a, a compassionate word here for the poor layperson in the pew. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff, Sarah, you and I discuss on this podcast goes way over the heads of lay people. Uh, it, it, and we hope, you know, if they hang in there, they can learn something and, and raise their level of knowledge in matters of theology. But we just should simply grant that there are many people for whom even our popular podcast here uh, is just too highfalutin for them to follow. They can't get it. So what what do people in this category, which I suspect might actually be the majorities in Christian congregations in America, what do they have to rely on? How can they test whether their pastor is is faithful and true? And for many of them, it's the doctrine of the new birth. Do they see that their pastor actually loves God? and displays affection for God, and, and, and feels, and therefore conveys the love of God received and therefore handed on to others. Uh, and I think we have to give some acknowledgement to this reality, because I think you are right. I think there's a certain kind of anti-revivalist minister who goes to great lengths to demonstrate that they'll have nothing to do with satisfying those questions. They'll, in fact, look upon them with disdain. Uh, And I just think this indicates a kind of a sick syndrome into which we've been caught. Hmm. That's really, that's really interesting. I guess the the upshot of all this for me, maybe surprisingly, is is the theology of children. (laughs) Because Bullinger starts way back when with his concern about justifying infant baptism and comes up with this covenant idea. And then we have in the early um, American colonial setting, the halfway covenant, you know, you're sort of in and, and sort of out. And then you have all these revivals that are trying to engineer in people a 
what I would call like a discontinuous religious event, something that's a, a break from before. And what it seems like all of like the the revival wants everyone to encounter the gospel as if for the first time, like in the New Testament, you know, an adult that stumbles upon Jesus or an apostle and hears it. And in that moment, it all happens. But what this suggests to me is that the, you know, the first mission is truly the intergenerational mission and thinking more coherently and creatively and positively about what it means for people who have always been in church and who do not have a primarily discontinuous, but a continuous relationship. What is the integrity and reality of that? It seems that there's a basic bias against people who are so lucky as to have always been known by Christ from the beginning of their lives. And it seems if we thought maybe more intelligently and compassionately about children's true humanity, that, I don't know, maybe that that might be a way forward and also help to address the incredible loss of of young people to the church that we've seen unfold over the past couple of decades. Yeah, and I would, Sarah, I would correlate that failure to evangelize children in the right best sense of the word, uh, to do good news in the name of Jesus to children within the life of the church itself. I would correlate that with the the collapse of catechesis since the 1960s. Uh, catechesis is Christian Torah. This is how you raise the children in the faith through catechesis. And this reminds me of a remarkable passage by the high Calvinist John Nevin, part of the Mercersburg theology movement in the 1830s and 40s, um, over against Samuel Schmucker, president Mm. and leading theologian of American theology at Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary, who was hot into the anxious bench and all for Finney's revivalism. And Nevin got into a polemic. Uh, He wrote a treatise called The Anxious Bench. Uh, And in it, he addressed Samuel Schmucker with words to this effect. Why are you a Lutheran? Why do you call (laughs) yourself a Lutheran? And I think if you look in the... uh, uh, the Entertainment Evangelism Wing of the Missouri Synod, and if you look at the uh, liturgical uh, free experimentation that's going on in the ELCA, I think we could say with John Nevin to both of these conservative and liberal uh, versions of American revivalism, why do you still call yourself a Lutheran? Yeah. I have I've just, again, my, my experience is representative of no one else's, but I find that adults are also dying for catechesis. If they have any religious awareness at all, they want so badly to understand and make sense of all the complications of life and religious reality. So go forth and catechize. <laughs> and, you know, I think our podcast is, is, uh, is doing something in that regard because as it's catching on more and more, I'm involved in a number of correspondence. Interestingly enough, sometimes some of the best correspondences are with lay people oh, for, exact, awesome, yeah. for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. So great. let American revivalism rest in peace. <laughs> 
but maybe we can do with a dose of uh, Swabian and Malagasy revivalism. We'll see. Okay, well, we need to continue these enormous topics raised here. So next time on the show, we will be talking about experience as a theological criterion. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.